Why wouldn't mm-hmm. you let firms pay workers more money? Now, could that be inflationary? Yeah, it could, but I don't care. I mean, my story is always this, that the Emancipation Proclamation made cotton more expensive, but that wasn't the point. Just Mm. because you make something more expensive isn't a bad thing. That if we are talking about rewarding people fairly, then part of that is going to be inflationary. If we pay people more to sell hamburgers, to, to make hamburgers, then yes, it is quite possible that hamburgers become more expensive. And so what? That's okay. Because you know, th- that's the way it's supposed to be working. So, and I know why MMT people generally sort of shy away from, from saying that it could possibly be inflationary. Uh, and, and I understand some of the arguments and don't disagree with them totally, but I also just don't care. Because if it turns out that by creating a jobs program and full employment causes the wages of the poorest Americans to go up and therefore causes uh, those of us that are, are lucky enough to not be in that sector to have to pay more for getting our yard cut, to have to pay more for getting our hair cut. So what? That's okay. That's what a civilized society is about. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is part two of my three-part conversation with Texas Christian University economics professor, author, and cowboy economist, John Harvey. In part one, we talked about John himself, institutionalism, and discrimination. In the final two parts, John and I talk about inflation, as seen through the lenses of both mainstream and post-Keynesian economics. As people who challenge the overwhelmingly dominant school of economic thought, we must learn both schools. Another reason is because we want to efficiently communicate with and convince the masses who have been influenced by the dominant school and the nearly infinite power that backs it. I was inspired to talk with John after having an unpleasant debate with a local lawyer and history buff. He was perfectly pleasant and respectful, but his views I found to be highly cynical and disappointing. With his permission, the entire dialogue can be found in the show notes. As I understand it, his view is that it is essentially impossible for the central government, the one and only issuer of the currency, to safely do anything bold without offsetting that spending one-to-one with taxation or bond sales in advance. In his own words, quote, I simply believe the government has to pay for these programs through taxes or serious consequences will result. Often the trade-off is worth it. I'd gladly pay more taxes for universal health care, for example." 
This is because, regardless how desperate the program may be needed, creating the money to do it would increase the money supply, which would cause inflation, which would cause the people to rise up and literally bring down the entire government. In other words, the quantity theory of money is so volatile that even the state's monopoly on violence is no match for the unbridled rage that would result from the inflation caused by the new money necessary to implement that bold policy. So for example, take the Green New Deal, which is required to prevent organized human civilization from devolving into literal worldwide chaos. Daring to create the money necessary to implement this program would cause a revolution and bring down the government anyway. As Randy Ray and Yeva Nersissian say in a recent article, it is irrational to fear deficits more than we fear the annihilation of human civilization. This kind of objection reminds me of the resistance I have received regarding the job guarantee. For example, if job guarantee jobs are not valuable, it would potentially demoralize workers, lead to corruption, and undermine the entire program. Another is that corruption in general would make it essentially impossible for the job guarantee to be properly managed. I've included some screenshots of this criticism in the show notes. So the idea that these micro concerns would somehow so dramatically undermine the entire macro purpose of these programs is of course absurd. For example, how valuable are the jobs we have today, right now? Even if a job guarantee weren't as valuable as the jobs we currently have, would they be so bad that it would completely outweigh the horrors of involuntary unemployment? What kind of corruption do we have right now in the for-profit private sector? Even if there was some corruption in the administration of the job guarantee, again, would it be so detrimental that it would outweigh the horrors of involuntary unemployment? How much has corruption undermined other federal programs such as the police, libraries, and public schools? And of course, those who vehemently express these concerns are almost always not desperate for a job or a better job. As John says, the job guarantee is, quote, elegant in its simplicity and just so obviously simple and straightforward. The job guarantee is as beneficial to society as seatbelts are in cars. While padded dashboards and more flexible and stronger windshields may be a good idea, it is no replacement for the most important safety feature of all, which is seatbelts. In these final two parts, John and I talk about the reality of inflation and describe and refute several mainstream concepts related to it. These concepts include the quantity theory of money, the money illusion, rational expectations, and the never-before-seen Nehru boogeyman of runaway inflation, the latter of which, in reality, is hyperinflation. A couple of notes before we get started. First, John talks about an interesting and revealing debate he had with a monetarist in the comment section of one of his Forbes articles. That full dialogue can be found in the show notes. Second, 
you'll hear me say that, quote, runaway inflation is not possible unless government is complicit. What I mean to express is the following sentence from page 257 in chapter 17 called Unemployment and Inflation from the MMT textbook, which applies less to a genuinely hyperinflationary episode. Quote, the role of government is also implicated. While it is the distributional conflict which initiates the inflationary spiral, government policy has to be compliant for the nascent inflation to persist. in Europe. Uh, and um, no, that's where I said to him, you know, how, what are we going to do about the economics discipline? And he said, well, it's dead. There's nothing we can do. Um, and so, well, what can we do? Well, we focus on policymakers and, and with, with the help yeah, of, of, uh, of lay people, we're actually making some progress. Uh, and so, so they were unknowingly influencing what is now MMT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's a good time to be uh, I feel bad for my, you know, for my teachers, who many of whom have passed on now, to miss out on this period of history right here where we've got a chance. I don't want to get too excited because everything is falling apart all over the planet. <laughs> but uh, we've got a chance to maybe, maybe the very fact that it is falling apart is leading so many of these progressives who are looking for solutions. And we're not getting the solutions from the neoclassicals. The neoclassicals, well, we can't afford it. Uh, and you know, we can't afford not to. So this is a really exciting time to be, I think, a, uh, post Keynes institutionalist economist, uh, because the MMT stuff is really just taken off. I don't know if I answered Great. your question in there anywhere or not. Yeah, no, yeah. no, it was good. It was good. That was good. Um, okay. So let's, let's switch gears. Let's, let's go to, uh, inflation if I may. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay, great. So what I, what I'd like to do is I'd like to just give you a few minutes of background of conversation that I had. Yeah. And then just use that as a bouncing off point to get into the broader concepts of inflation. Cause, cause I've been reading the macroeconomics tech books. I've been watching some of your lectures. I've been, you know, I read your, 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 uh, new post Keynesian chapter, which was like very enlightening. Um, so I, I have a lot of specific questions and I think I'm starting to come to grips with like what mainstream is. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I have that larger context. So I think I should, I think, you know, in part of talking to you that I think it would make sense to get a larger context before I start diving into like the ISLM curve. I'm trying to understand that better. Right. So I had a debate and I'll tell you, I'm not going to put this in the recording, but I had, it was actually my, I was, I gave a, I wrote a, 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 a story to introduce MMT to kids and I gave it, uh, in an eighth grade class last school year, you know, back when we were allowed outside. Yeah. Um, and it went really well. It went really well. So my 13-year-old, um, screw it, I am putting in the recording. <laughs> um, <laughs> so my 13-year-old is in the social studies class, and his, his teacher is a lawyer. And obviously, you know, well-knowledgeable in history. It's a history teacher. Yeah. And so I said, can I give this lesson to your class? And it, and it turned out that instead of even answering the question, it turned into a debate. Ah. And, it, and I didn't understand that it was an even in a debate because I, I thought – you know, he didn't understand, he didn't, wasn't familiar with the subject. And, but it turned out that it was just a debate. He was challenging me and it was disappointing. Uh, but the, but what happened was uh, he gave me permission to share the dialogue and I'm going to put all of it into the show notes. so People can see the whole thing, but I'd like to just share a couple of his major points that he said. Yeah. And 
to use that as a bouncing off point to get into the broader subject. So, so ooh, where are my glasses here? There. Yeah. Uh, so, if, quote. This is just. A, I'm going to start off with a quote from him. Yeah. If government keeps printing money, yes, they can pay for its own obligations indefinitely. But what it cannot do is force its citizens to keep accepting the money, even if it has a law and force behind it as a mandate. This is what happened in America during the Articles of Confederation, and America simply refused to accept those dollars in exchange for goods and labor. Yes, government printing can have a stimulative effect and can create more resources, but many goods are quite limited, such as land. When government doubles the money supply, the price that I will be willing to pay to sell my land doubles. Uh, therefore doubles. If you do this enough, then no one will accept the money at all. I respond with, the state theory of money is valid as long as there is a sovereign that exists and that imposes taxes and can project violence when the taxes are not paid. So as long as the sovereign still exists and doesn't trigger a revolution by treating their people that horribly, then among its own people, the state theory of money still applies. He responded, that's right, but one of the conditions of preventing a revolution among your people is not inflating the money supply. So what I get out of that is that the state theory of money to him doesn't even matter because if because the quantity theory of money is so volatile that creating money would cause such chaos that the people would rise up and the sovereign wouldn't exist anymore. So a final thing about it is at that point I passed him your Forbes article, Money Growth Does Not Cause Inflation. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and – I need to take a, a little bit of background. This, I was inspired by Stephanie Kelton's 2017 article called Congress Can Give Everyone Every American a Pony If It Breeds Enough Ponies, if you remember that article. <laughs> no, I don't remember that one. But, <laughs> but you can yeah. understand. So, so that, inspired, yeah. that inspired me to do a thought experiment, and I added it to my old uh, introduction to MMT lesson that, it, that I have on YouTube. And, and it just brings home you know, resources are what matter in federal programs and not money. It's a very resource-intensive program. Obviously, give literally everyone a pony if they want one. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we can't do it to some extent without violating inflation. We can do it, maybe not literally everyone, but certainly we can do it to some extent. And so he saw that video and then he read your article and he said that my pony article basically refutes your article. And so basically what he's saying is that the quantity theory of money in his mind, I believe, and I think in a lot of people's mind, is fiscal policy. Exactly and so you point, you're thinking you, the whole time. You point out, you know, the, the quantity theory of money and the helicopter, Friedman helicopter and all that is monetary policy, which cannot, you know, the people have to accept it. So the fact that, that the Pony for All Act, the chat, you know, thought experiment is very highly resource intensive. And the fact that he's thinking of fiscal policy is I don't even know where to begin yeah. with all of these things and that the state theory of money doesn't even hold because if it's like, you know, if, if the people get so upset with inflation, then it does, the sovereign won't exist because they'll rise up. So yeah, no, that's no, a no. lot, but it really was a lot. No, so, no. Yeah, I know exactly where I want to step in on that. Please. Uh, and that is what you already mentioned. You have got to differentiate between monetary and fiscal policy. And these arguments about money growth leads to inflation confuse the two. They are not the same thing. It is impossible. I'm not just going to say that it's unlikely that money growth can cause inflation. It's impossible. Can fiscal policy cause inflation? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it did during World War II. But can monetary policy cause inflation? Never. Now, first of all, let me explain Friedman's classic, quote unquote, um, optimum quantity, what was it? the optimum uh, quantity of money. I can't remember what the name of the article is now, but 
uh, I, I had to read it in grad school, which was one of the reasons why I didn't want to go to grad school anymore. <laughs> uh, but uh, and then I used to assign it in class. Uh, but, you know, as an example, and I knew something always really bothered me about it and I couldn't put my finger on it. So so here's the story that Friedman tells. Um, he says, OK, uh, let's say there's this island and on this island, you know, there's X number of people. Everyone's fully employed. OK, so he's already assuming away excess resources, all right, which is very subtle in the article. But, it, but there are no excess resources. Everyone's, you know, working uh, full time. Uh, OK. Yeah. And um, then. Uh, everyone wants to hold a certain amount of cash for security, but everything else they spend, you know, so every month you get your hundred dollar paycheck and you spend 90 and keep 10 or, or, or whatever. The ratio doesn't really matter, but everyone already has as much cash holdings as they want. Then the government, uh, and he says, let's just say a helicopter flies over and drops some money out and causes people to have more money than they want. Hold on. Stop. That's not monetary policy. Monetary policy replaces one financial asset with another. Monetary policy buys your treasury bills. So if Friedman wanted to say, and I always picture the Grinch sneaking down to Whoville, um, you know, if, if Friedman wanted to say that the helicopter pilot lands and carries a pile of cash and sneaks into people's houses and exchanges their you know, treasury bills for the cash and then sneaks back, okay, that works. All right, that was monetary policy. But that's not what he said. He said they gave people more money and monetary policy cannot make you wealthier. It can only change the, the, the um, form of your wealth. So, mm -hmm. you know, now in his story, people had more money, but they already had as much savings as they wanted because he already assumed that to start with. So they spent the extra money. We were already assuming we were at full employment. So any money they spent caused inflation. Well, let's go back to the, you know, make Friedman rewrite the paper now and say, no, 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 no. You know, what if there was actually a referee who knew what the hell they were talking about when they were looking at this paper, which actually I think he published in a set of essays anyway, so there was no referee. But, um, you know, and they said, wait a minute, uh, Milton, that's not monetary policy, that's fiscal. Oh, yeah, you're right. So Friedman then rewrites the paper and says that this helicopter pilot sneaks in, exchanges people's treasury bills for cash and runs off. And then people wake up the next morning and instead of cash savings, they have treasury bill savings. All right. Well, now what they're going to want to do is not spend money. Uh, what they're going to do is try to sell those treasury bills uh, and try to get the cash back. So this may change financial market conditions. This may change the equivalent of interest rates, which is what monetary policy does do. But monetary policy can't change prices, not directly. So all it does is change people's form of wealth. So when somebody starts saying, well, if the and this is what I say, when people say, when the, what happens when the government prints money? And I, I, say, I preface it with, I swear to you, I am not being sarcastic. When the government prints money, what that does is it makes a pile of money in front of the printer. And that's all it does. <laughs> now you have to have a means of introducing it into the macro economy. I, I had one of my proudest moments as an economist was, was after that article you mentioned. And a guy that got his PhD at University of Chicago uh, and was a big monetarist, uh, therefore Milton Friedman follower, was, was very pleasant, very respectful, but we had an exchange back when I used to bother to read the comments. Uh, we had an exchange. And I said to him, uh, you, you know, he said, yeah, I enjoyed your article. He said, but of course, it must be true that, that, the, that, that um, we can give people more cash than they want or there wouldn't be inflation. And that's what Friedman was doing. He was giving people more cash than they wanted. They already had as much savings as they wanted. He gave them extra savings, so they wanted to get rid of it. And I said, okay, fair enough. How does the Fed do that? 
what tool do they have that enables them to give people money they don't want? And I swear to you, it was then I, I have it printed out. Uh, so that I, cause it's one of those things where like when you see a UFO and then years later, well, maybe I didn't see that. Um, well, I'm thinking back to what well, did, did he really say those things? Yeah, he did. I wrote it all down. I copied it at the time. So I'd remember, um, well, uh, so here, this was his answer to what specific policy tool does the fed have that allows them to give me cash? I don't want that will then lead me to go out and, and spend that cash. Well, it's like when you put logs in the fireplace, no, no, no. What specific policy tool does the Fed have? These were his actual examples. Uh, well, it's like when you plant trees in an orchard. I said, no, no, no. What tool does the Fed have? Well, Institutionalism. It's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a hot potato. I said, no, 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 no. And he, and he used the helicopter. Uh, and I said, mm. and remember what I said about George Selgin and Randy Ray and about what they mm. respected as evidence was different? That mm. was the problem between me and this guy. I... You had to tell me, along with all the other post-Keynesians and institutionalists, tell me how the Fed does it. In his school of thought, that's not necessary. Close enough is okay. In fact, I don't know how many listeners know this. Maybe many of them do. But, uh, well, uh, there was an article back in 2016 by Paul Romer, who then went on to win the Nobel Prize, so he's a neoclassical, where he said that macroeconomics in his own discipline has gone backwards for 30 years. And I, I just quoted this in a, in a paper today. Uh, I can't remember the exact quote now, but uh, it's so bad that it no longer qualifies as scientific research. He literally said this about his own school of thought uh, Mm. and his uh, and macroeconomics. Now, I disagree with him on the on the details a great deal, but I agree with him completely on that. And one of the things he blamed and absolutely rightly was this whole Friedman thing of it doesn't matter how unrealistic the model uh, assumptions are as long as the model predicts well. I guess so, except wouldn't a more realistic model predict better? And Friedman goes on to say, which Romer also quotes, in fact, uh, oftentimes the models with the most unrealistic assumptions are the ones that are the most significant. I'm, good luck with that in the physics department. Good luck with that in the biology department. You know, Well, what I decided to assume here was that uh, atoms actually like to go out on Wednesday nights and get drunk. You know, Now, I know that's not really true, but you know, it makes the model work well. Well, it's ridiculous. So the, the economics discipline has been driven by this idea that you don't have to make the models match what goes on in the real world. So that was the that'd be the first thing I'd say about that is be careful. Don't mix up monetary and fiscal policy. Monetary policy cannot cause inflation because you don't make people richer that way. You only change the form of wealth that they're holding. Now, you know, there, there may be an indirect effect. So is that the same? Is is the monetary policy cannot cause inflation? It's impossible. Is that the same? Is that equivalent to saying monetary policy cannot change prices? Yeah, it is. It is. It can indirectly, but what monetary policy does directly is affect the financial market. But it doesn't affect the goods market directly. Not in the way that those who are arguing, like your your uh, your, your lawyer uh, acquaintance said, because what they were implying was people have extra money and they go out and spend it. Well, monetary policy doesn't give you extra money. Monetary policy can change the, now you can sell your treasury bills uh, and then use that cash to go out and buy stuff. But you know, only if the public already wanted to, this is not uh, what the monitors call an excess supply of money. So yes, there's an indirect effect, but not like fiscal policy. Fiscal policy, it's direct. Fiscal policy, you are making someone wealthier. That's what you are doing. Uh, during World War II, 
we are giving all these people back home, you know, we're going from still almost 10% unemployment in 1941 to 1.9 a couple of years into the war. And inflation was really bad the first year because not only were we giving people all this income and, and, you know, through, through these jobs and the, the war effort, but we were also reducing the supply of consumer goods at the same time because we're shifting production towards the war effort. So absolutely fiscal policy was uh, um, inflationary and that's why they raised taxes. And that's why they, that's why they did bond drives because I, I was looking, I did a Cowboy Economist video on this and, and doing the background research on it. I found a document from one of the people that was instrumental in the bond drives. They kept referring to what they right. called dangerous <laughs> dollars. And dangerous dollars were these extra dollars in people's pockets that they just wanted to go out and spend, even though there was nothing to spend it on. That's your classic inflation story um, that, you know, Friedman is trying to get at, but he's going at it the wrong way because monetary policy can't do that. Monetary policy obviously has an indirect impact on people's incomes, but not directly. But fiscal absolutely does directly. A, a tax cut or an increase in government spending makes the private sector wealthier. Hell, that's a big part of MMT. That's why we want a government deficit, because then that creates a private sector surplus. But a private sector surplus creates more spending power. And if there's nothing to spend it on, then that can create inflation. So, okay. Yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, so, so can you bring this back to this, the, the Pony for All Act? So this bold, really resource-intensive uh, you know, fiscal policy that – can any policy can be done to some extent without being inflationary? So could you could you take you know his criticism of that this bold phys- fiscal policy just can't be done? But basically, it's just bold fiscal policy can't be done right. without right. causing revolution and the state being overthrown. Yeah, yeah. So if we reword his argument and take monetary policy out of it completely, he's still making an argument. And that is, however, it's an argument about fiscal policy. So if we give him the benefit of the doubt, this is what you're saying, right? We give him the benefit of the doubt and say, well, you're not really talking about monetary. You're talking about fiscal. But OK, so uh, so uh, does that then extend to? Um, well, first of all, inflation is really poorly understood. Uh, and, and part of this, well, a lot of it is the fault of mainstream economics. Uh, and I, I totally understand why MMT people have tried to argue that it won't be inflationary. My own personal view is I don't care if it is or not. Uh, it, it doesn't matter to me because- You mean bold fiscal policy? Yeah, I don't care if it's inflationary or not because inflation doesn't do what people think it does. People think that inflation eats away at everyone's income, but let's go back to the government's deficit is the private sector surplus. Well, wait a minute, if I'm spending more, then somebody's getting more. So inflation can't possibly be a net drain. If I'm spending more for gas, then the gas companies get more money. So inflation is a zero-sum game uh, in that sense, the same way the government budget is in the sense that if the government is in deficit, then the private sector is in surplus. So if I'm spending more, somebody's getting more. So wait a minute, who is that? Who's getting more? And that's the key. You've got to stop and say, who's getting more? Okay, so let's say right after the coronavirus strikes, uh, there's a, a rush in demand for masks, as there certainly was, and this drives the price of masks up. Should we therefore throw the economy into recession to stop the price of masks going up? Or should we allow the private sector to do one of the few things it does well and go ahead and do it, and that is induce other entrepreneurs to make masks, which is what you want? Because inflation is not across the board. It is 
localized. It is in particular sectors. It is in those sectors where, for example, let's go back to the ponies. Let's say that the ponies, uh, that the price of, of ponies goes up because of the increased demand. Well, then they'll breed more ponies. And that's exactly what the public wanted. So you allow that kind of inflation to work its way through. Now, Americans don't have this. Well, they have a false sense of Weimar Germany and Zimbabwe, too. But I'm thinking of the 70s. Uh, and in the 70s, inflation was still a zero sum game, except we were on the negative end. Pretty, you know, most of America was on the negative end the whole time. And it was the oil exporting countries that were on the positive end. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What happened then was a redistribution of income from oil importers to oil exporters. And then, of course, within oil importers, there were certain sectors that did well. But, you know, that's our that's our memory. Uh, our recent memory of inflation is that, well, it hurts everyone. Well, no, actually, it doesn't hurt everyone. It didn't hurt the people that lived in Saudi Arabia, or at least, you know, not those who were in power. Um, it helped them. So if if we're not talking about something like that, if we're talking about, uh, and this drives me crazy, I'll see a quote from the Fed. Well, uh, building materials prices are starting to go up. So we're thinking of raising interest rates or or worse yet, wages are starting to go up. And the labor market's tight. Wages are starting to go up. We're thinking about trying to slow the economy down. Why the hell would you do that? Why wouldn't mm -hmm. you let firms pay workers more money? Now, could that be inflationary? Yeah, it could, but I don't care. I mean, my story is always this, that the Emancipation Proclamation made cotton more expensive. But that wasn't the point. Mm -hmm. Just because you make something more expensive isn't a bad thing. That if we are talking about rewarding people fairly, then part of that is going to be inflationary. If we pay people more to sell hamburgers, to, to make hamburgers, then yes, it is quite possible that hamburgers become more expensive. And so what? That's okay. Because, you know, th that's the way it's supposed to be working. So, and I know why MMT people generally sort of shy away from, from saying that it could possibly be inflationary. Uh, and, and I understand some of the arguments and don't disagree with them totally, but I also just don't care. Because if it turns out that by creating a jobs program and full employment causes the wages of the poorest Americans to go up and therefore causes uh, those of us that are, are lucky enough to not be in that sector to have to pay more for getting our yard cut, to have to pay more for getting our hair cut, so what? That's okay. That's what a civilized society is about where you're rewarding people justly. You know, we, we can't be both upset about upset about the declining middle class um, and then also worry about, well, but we, you know, gosh, if we, I, I've had some of my, my progressive friends talk about um, that, uh, you know, well, but this illegal immigration keeps prices low. Well, yeah, so hmm. does slavery. That's not a reason to justify it, all right? Uh, that, you know, if, if we're going to have these people here, they should be paid, you know, uh, fairly. So, that, you know, that, that, that's kind of a selfish argument to say that, uh, well, in fact, they didn't, say it. they didn't say it that way. They said, well, but if we cut back on, on, on immigration, then the prices of vegetables and stuff would go up. Yeah, you're right. Um, and, and if we paid them properly, it would go up and that's okay. So I find it one of the great ironies of economic policy that our central bank wants to step in and stop the market from doing one of the things it actually does relatively well. When prices start to rise due to increasing demand, good for those who are reaping the benefit. It is not due to them avoiding competition like that Shkreli guy. It's because they faced competition and came out on top. America. Now, 
Of course, the World War II situation was different because we were both creating jobs and income and reducing the availability of key goods like gasoline. And in order to make sure that it was not the case that only the wealthy could afford gas, they rationed it. And actually, uh, this is a, make a general rule out of this. I mean, for example, uh, in the earlier situation there with housing, uh, if the housing prices are going up, you could make an argument for government intervention or regulation if this is something that is vital to people's lives. Uh, but my point here is our knee-jerk reaction to rising prices caused by economic prosperity should not be to throw the economy into recession. And yet, while our government does precisely that, they try to stop inflation caused by prosperity, they let most of the market power issues go. That's like getting angry every time your kids stay up past their bedtime to study or, or help orphans, but ignore it when they're up at 2 a.m. on a school night playing Xbox and snorting cocaine. Makes about as much sense as a kickstand on a horse. Now, does that mean this, and I guess what I'm trying to say here, Jeff, and not very directly, is that that person's story of this runaway inflation thing doesn't really hold any water to start with. That's not what happens. Um, if we quote unquote overstate, like well, let's use World War II as the, as the perfect example. Um, that uh, just as the MMT people say, if uh, we have a, a general problem of people bidding up consumer goods prices, then to some extent, uh, well, our problem then was we couldn't increase the production of stuff uh, because we were diverting production to war effort, but they did raise taxes which is what the MM people, people say. And they did have the bond drive to try to drain income out. So, you know, and let me say one more thing here about, about the uh, lawyer's view, is that there's this vision of what happened in Zimbabwe and Weimar, Germany, as from, resulting from printing too much money. Inflation is like a fever. It, it is, oh wait, I'm not gonna do a Saturday Night Live thing there, sorry. Uh, but um, <laughs> in, inflation is like a fever uh, that it's never, it's a symptom, but it's never the cause. All right. So uh, in, in Weimar, Germany, what have you got? Well, you've got the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, you've got strikes, uh, civil unrest. That was the problem. In Zimbabwe, what did you have? Well, they had uh, taken the farms away from the white landowners and given them to, to black landowners who still haven't worked out how to do uh, farming yet. And I was just watching something the other day. Oh, gosh, from one of our, our, our friends in Australia. I can't think of his name right now. Um, but uh, he was saying well, output fell by 90 percent. Guess what? That's inflationary. Plus, the government jacked spending up not to try to stimulate the economy, but to pay off cronies and, and stay in power. So, yeah, that's going to be inflationary. But it wasn't because they printed some money, but everything else was fine. So I'm sorry. I, I went 100 miles an hour there on 10 different things. Uh, reel me <laughs> back in and, and tell me what you're going to focus on. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. Uh, the, uh, the chapter in the macroeconomics tech textbook really brings home that inflation is is really a reflection of class conflict. Yes. It, it, to some, it, every form, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, disease or whatever you could argue. Is, Correct. Is, but, is, but, but still, even after that point, who suffers and who doesn't suffer is, is class conflict. Yeah. And, and it's, so it's, what does price stability even mean? It's basically, how do you, how do you choose to manage price stability do you choose to manage price stability for everyone or do you choose to manage price stability only for some? I mean, that seems to be the only yeah. two choices and that the job guarantee is if you is to manage it for everybody. So, you know, clearly that's the good faith way of doing it. And actually I was going to save this question for the end, but I'm, but it's like you obviously the right thing to do is to manage inflation for everybody. 
and manage prices, uh, uh, maintain price stability for everybody. That's the right thing to do if you have a heart and a soul and, uh, you know, but a civilized society is what Paul Davidson called it. Yeah. Okay. So civilized society. And in, and in, in everyone's academic work and in articles and posts and your Forbes articles and, and everyone on both sides, mainstream and post Keynesian and MMT, you know, I, these arguments of the uh, post Keynesian side is we must have full employment. I guess MMT is specifically the job guarantee, uh, you know, way of going about it. And the mainstream side is, you know, but no, we're, we're worried. We're truly worried about runaway inflation. So we, unfortunately we have to sacrifice someone other than me or someone I care about in order to, you know, to manage that. Right. But it's just like, Underneath that is something very sinister, like that going back to, you know, the the question about uh, discrimination and what we're really up against and that what we're really up against has unlimited power behind it. And it's like even Bill Mitchell is very strong in his blog. He's extremely strong in his wording, but still it doesn't seem to ever go there that this really is a class war and the end of the world is not necessarily that far of an exaggeration of the consequence of this. And to some extent, I know that you have to take it on its face in order to properly refute the argument. But I don't know, like, how do you how do you take that? Like, is it just up to me as an activist to be able to say those things that you have to stay in the uh, the neutral fray in order to be able to refute these things and to give us the evidence that we need? Yeah. to make those assertions, those stronger assertions? Like, no. I don't know. There's not even really a question in there, but I think you can take yeah. something out of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I know what you're saying. Um, well, certainly around the bar at a conference, we're all saying exactly what it, – it's a class war. Um, and But we're mostly writing for each other, bear in mind. We're not writing anything that a neoclassical is going to read. So it's, it's not like we have to bring it up. Uh, that there are all kinds of unstated assumptions – when you're reading a paper from the Journal of Economic Issues, which is the Institutionalist Journal, or the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics, or any of the other related journals, there's all kinds of unstated premises. I know where people are coming from when I read one of those. You don't have to say in an article published in the Review of Radical Political Economics, by the way, I think that capitalism is unfair. You know, um, and you don't have to bring that up. So, so we don't outwardly say it, not because uh, we're, we're trying to be careful not to step on any toes. We're not even talking to them because they're not listening. Uh, so we're talking to each other and we all share this same, um, you know, I, and I got to tell you, I have become increasingly radicalized. Uh, I used to think that, oh, I, I'm ready to tear the system down now. Uh, I, and I guess maybe a lot of people are. Perhaps this is why uh, young Americans are talking about socialism and so forth in a way that was unimaginable when I was in college in the 1980s uh, with, with Ronald Reagan in office. But, but no, that, that, that is there, Jeff. It is absolutely there that, that we are absolutely having uh, on, when we're having a beer, having the same kind of conversations uh, that the activists are, we're just not writing it in a paper because in a paper that's not really going to make you, and it's a paper to each other. So we don't, I'm not trying to convince Ann Mayhew uh, that I think <laughs> that the way the Federal Reserve does uh, you know, monetary policy is, you know, I guess, oppressive to the lower class. As she already knows. That. I'm not trying to prove that. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a paper with a statistical analysis of how it, you know, uh, reduces incomes because every time we have a tight labor market, they try to throw the economy into reverse 
because this is somehow dangerous to have poor people making more money. So it's absolutely there, though. Uh, and, you know, again, it's just not something we write about because we don't need to convince each other. And we already know. And the neoclassicals aren't listening to us anyway. OK. All right. Fair enough. Um, it, the whole concept of, of inflation is like MMTers. I, I don't know if post if you, if it's accurate to say post Keynesians want a job guarantee. I know they want to pursue full employment, but I'll just say MMTers want the job guarantee because it's just obvious. It's like seatbelts in cars. Yeah, I agree. It, it makes everyone's it makes everyone obviously safer. And it's like all of this talk of like you know Phillips curves and ISLM whatever. Uh, and and it's like all of these conversations is like I I know there's a good analogy out there, but I only, I'm only just starting to think about it. But it's something like. You know, since we don't have seatbelts, we might as well put might as well make the the windshields a little more flexible and and strong. We might some put some padding on the dashboards and whatever. And meanwhile, we're here just putting seatbelts. Why are we even talking about this? Yeah, you know, it's it's just so obvious. Well, I'll tell you what I think the problem is. And let me tell you first of all, you're right that not all post Keynesians are behind the job guarantee um, because some of them see it as almost slavery. We're telling you you have to do this. And I was telling my wife that she's a very strong supporter of, of, uh, of my economics at any rate. Uh, and she said, well, what the hell's their idea? I said, I don't know. I don't know. I said, until they come up with something that makes as much sense as the job guarantee, but allows you to do whatever the hell you want, then they need to keep their mouth shut. Um, <laughs> the, uh, and, I, and my view of the job guarantee is this, because I've had some interesting discussions with a really nice man who is a player in some – uh, UBI group. Um, he, he, I'm terrible at Twitter, by the way. If somebody messes me on Twitter, I won't even notice it. Um, I just kind of use it for announcements. So anyway, we, we did actually have a bit of a conversation on Twitter. As I say, very nice man. Um, but we disagreed about UBI and you said, well, people should be allowed to do what they want to do. I said, well, but we're social animals and we live in packs and we have social needs. We have Children, oh, at a school, you absolutely know what I'm talking about in terms of needing counselors, needing aides. Um, and so if we're going to give you a share of output, you're going to help the rest of our society out. This is, a, this is a civilized thing. Now, we can give you some choices. Here are the things you could do under the job guarantee. Uh, but And one of those choices can be, I want to stay at home and raise my children because we don't have to define job the way we right. do in a market system. I can define job as something useful for our, you know, society. Now, is this open for uh, to abuse? Everything's open to abuse. What what is that saying? Uh, that, that you know, don't uh, uh, you know, screw up the good because it's not perfect. That's not the right thing. But, but you know, yeah, that, that's it's, no, it's not perfect. But what what do you get that's better? Oh well, right now, well, no, it's not better. So I totally agree on the job guarantee. It it, it seems so brilliant in its simplicity. Uh, and, it, it, and, it, and I think I think UBI comes actually comes from the assumption that the only kind of a job is the horrible situation that we have now without yes. being like you said of redefining these terms, redefining productivity, redefining value, redefining right. uh, work. And we did talk about that. Um, I, can't, I can't remember his name. Uh, and, and he you know, he thought that was a good point, but he was still leaning towards the idea that I should, you know, that, that no one should tell me what to do. Well, to me, that's almost Austrian. <laughs> that uh, no, this is a social, this is a social unit, and uh, our community needs things. Uh, so anyway, but, but that's a different point. Um, good Lord, now I've forgotten what you actually asked me about. No, you know, no, no. That actually, that actually, you know, it's uh, 
if we do a UBI, if we truly did a UBI, then then we're all of a sudden, you know, the you know the robots all serve yeah. our every needs, and it's even assuming that that's true, then all of a sudden we don't need human labor anymore, human energy anymore. So now we have to power the robots with even more, you know, fossil fuels or whatever. So that does not seem like a good solution, even if it was or, or the possible. matrix. And we got the matrix where we're all hooked up to like batteries. Uh, but, um, oh yeah, but, yeah, just just pure <laughs> energy flowing from us. I didn't right. think that. Uh, um, and, and people would resent it too, uh, quite you know. To, to, and from a realistic standpoint, whether we think it would be okay or not. Oh, okay. Let me give you an example here. Um, I got an email today from a uh, gentleman who asked me to be on his show every now and then, uh, who's also a pastor somewhere. Um, nice man. And I've talked to him quite a bit. And the last time I talked to him was shortly after the whole, you know, slowdown after COVID. And I was explaining to him how we should address it and how we should be supplementing people's incomes. And, you know, uh, otherwise we come out the end of this at the other side where, hey, I got a job again, but I have six months unpaid rent. So, you know, then was going to spend money. So I get done explaining him, you know, basically a, a version of the job guarantee. And we get off the, you know, we're off the, not, not off the air, but we were done recording. And he said, well, I can just hear the phone calls now. Uh, well, that's paying people for doing nothing. Oh, my God. This was back in like March and April when unemployment is at, you know, post uh, Great Depression highs. And, and his list. We need people to do nothing. In yeah, this that's, current- that's right. That's right. For crying out loud. So. So anyway, I, I, and uh, that was a little frustrating. Uh, and I do think that there would be some resentment in some circles uh, for UBI when, in fact, there's no need to even bring that up uh, when we could do the job guarantee instead and both do something socially. Remember, the market only does things that are profitable. It doesn't only do things that are good. It only does things that are profitable. So the job guarantee go- covers things that are good but not profitable. And man, oh man, is there a whole long list of those things. Uh, so sure. when we, I always t- I've told my students, when we run out of social problems, then we'll worry about what we're going to do with these people. Right, right. Okay, I have a, I have a couple of specific questions. Yeah. Um, I think you in your paper, yeah, yeah, you in your, in your uh, post-Kensian, new post-Kensian chapter, you say post-Kensians believe that human wants are satiable, that they don't want infinite stuff. There's no need to have, you know, infinite cars. There's no need to have infinite televisions and so on. So, and I agree with that. I think that makes perfect sense. However, it's also true that infinite greed is what's killing us. So can you, can you, can you, uh, that seems like a contradiction a little bit to me. I mean, I know it's a, it's a reflection of, it's a reflection of that, that those who just want to have security just don't have power. And if we had the job guarantee, that problem probably would go away, but but they do really have, to some extent, insatiable appetite. And I know it's not necessarily for resources. Yeah, but can but you... it's about something different. Uh, this, the thing you were just talking about was about wanting goods and services. Because the way things are organized right now, when people want goods and services, it creates a job. It might not create enough jobs, but it creates a job. So if we are satiable in our desire for goods and services, that sucks in terms of generating employment. All right, so, so that's where that was coming from. What you're talking about with the greed... Uh, on the, you know, Jeff Bezos is not going to the store with all this money he's making and thereby creating employment. He's squirreling it away. Uh, even he, actually, he, in many respects, is demonstrating that even more powerfully because while he's greedy for more wealth, yeah, he's got enough goods and services. You know, the, the, the top 20% of all income earners in the United States spend 60% of their income. The bottom 
80% of income earners spend about 95%. And it goes higher and higher as you go down because they don't have enough money to, to squirrel money away like that. So uh, the idea that desiring goods and services isn't insatiable is not the same thing as saying there aren't, there aren't some greedy people, though, uh, who honestly – I think you probably need a psychologist to talk about that. You know, why, why does Jeff Bezos believe he needs more and more and more? Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure I'm sure we've all seen these things. And I'm sure we're people on our side of the of politics are probably biased towards wanting to believe this is true. So I don't know how much science there is behind it. But the idea but it's just it's power, though. It's just a more yeah, generic it's power. The term. It, yeah, it, it, it's a psychological problem that they have. And, and you know, I've also seen before that people who are conservative tend to be more scared uh, that when you show them a picture of a snake, you know, they, they were measuring responses that they generated more fear response than a liberal did. And I really think they are terrified that, you know, right now, for example, Black Lives Matter uh, and that, you know, oh, my God, they're going to come get us. Uh, and so that's why we need our guns and so forth. And so that's also why the wealthy, even though they can't possibly spend every penny they've got, Oh, I've got to have more and more and more. Um, so mm. it, that's psychology. I, I, I'm, okay. I'm speaking out of my uh, discipline there. No, that, that, yeah, that makes sense. Power versus stuff. Yeah. Um, okay, another question for you. So runaway inflation, that's the big fear. Runaway inflation. We need to make people suffer that, I, you know, that have no relation to me, no one that I care about suffer, you know, so that we have price stability. So basically inflation for them, not for us. Is it? I believe it's true. I be, I'm pretty sure it's true that that it's not possible unless government is complicit. So I, I want to know, like this actual, if this runaway inflation, setting aside unemployment, just that if if runaway inflation actually happened, that how would that manifest itself, and how would government actually respond to it to stop it? Because it obviously, even if it might cause some damage. That if they responded to it properly, given our current institutions, yeah. like how would that actually play out? Um, and actually, uh, a, a quick aside, uh, if you know uh, Podianus Giannakouros, um, MMT economist in Virginia, he, he says that uh, hyperinflation is basically the state has pretty closely almost lost their sovereignty. Um, well, uh, first of all, it's never going to be because the government printed a bunch of money. I mean, there, there's or, or engaged in fiscal policy that that that's never been the case in economic history. It's always been some other deep seated issue. And let me give you an example. Uh, Weimar Germany. The first big problem was that people were speculating against the Reichsmark for very good reasons that they you know the Germans were uh, had the Ruhr Valley took taken away from them uh, by the French after the war Treaty of Versailles, which which Keynes marched out of because he thought it was ridiculous. Uh, had been the British representative. And um, then also they were being forced to pay reparations uh, to France, but in francs. They, they didn't want Reichsmarks, so they're having to buy francs with Reichsmarks. Uh, so there's all kinds of international speculation against the mark because everyone's thinking, oh, man, the mark's going to drop like a rock. Uh, they're going to have a terrible time getting the economy to recover. And think about this. If you're buying up uh, – Reich, uh, Mar uh, Franks with Reichsmarks that drives up the value of the franc and drives down the value of the Reichsmark. Uh, so there was terrible speculation against the currency. And it, 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 that meant that anything that Germans Im imported became much more expensive. 
And that was the first big cause of inflation in Germany, which had nothing to do with printing money. It had nothing to do with fiscal policy. And it was devastating. Uh, and so then on top of that, you've got strikes going on uh, in Germany, all kinds of civil unrest. So you've got a reduction in the, in the quantity of goods and services. And then, you know, what are you going to do if you're the government? Uh, and the prices are going up whether you're going to print the marks or not. They're going up. All right. So people are desperate to eat. Well, I'm going to print some marks and give them some marks. But, the, you know, I, I don't know. I guess I was kind of reacting to, to the government being complicit in it. Um, if anything, the government is trying to make sure that people have goods and services in that case. So they may be feeding the fire, but a fire that... Well, that, that's hyper... That's, that's more... I guess that's a more extreme situation of hyperinflation, which I guess runaway inflation is the boogeyman yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. hyperinflation. But but uh, so so in that situation, the government truly is... I mean, they pretty closely have lost their sovereignty, which I think is not, uh, yeah. not inaccurate in that yeah, particular that, case. A hell of a lot worse than that, yeah. <laughs> so more than oh, yeah, just okay. sovereignty, yeah. So this boogeyman, this more, this more in our current situation, is it? Is it just simply, you know, this runaway inflation is just a hundred percent a boogeyman? Is that right. is it that simple? I think so. I mean, the short answer is yes, but of course I'm a college professor, so I'm not going to give you the long answer. Um, and that is that that doesn't mean that something like that couldn't happen to us. You know, where we have this terrible underlying problem. Maybe we have a civil war uh, right here in Texas, and. Uh, this is, you know, reduces the supply of goods and services, but we need to pay our troops. Uh, so we print up some more, you know, I'm sorry, I don't want to use print there because that implies monetary policy. But when we engage in fiscal policy by paying our troops um, or with coronavirus, you know, if we drastically reduce. Oh, inflation finally went up quite a bit last month. Um, I've been watching this for a while. And, uh, hey, we don't often get to say as economists we made accurate predictions. But, but I said early on when there were some people saying, oh, there's going to be a lot of inflation uh, with this coronavirus, going to be reducing the supply of goods and services. And I said, well, the gas prices have dropped like a rock. Uh, so gas prices are, are factored into the CPI. That's going to swamp it. And it did until last month. Uh, and last month, the gas prices started coming back up. The food prices were already going up. So certainly we can have some inflation. But um, hyperinflation. Uh, and it, obviously, one of the problems here is there's no definition for that. Uh, well, heck, let me ask Google how it's going to define hyperinflation here real quick. Uh, sure. But let's see. I will type in here H-Y-P-E-R-I. <laughs> you know what I found first? Hyperinflation is never caused by printing money. Apparently, I typed that in there earlier. Huh. Go. All right. Let's see here. <laughs> Monetary inflation at a very high rate. Uh, so thanks a lot. There you go. Uh, and uh, so, so, I mean, but it, it, the point I seems mean, to be that if that if we have hyperinflation, we have bigger problems than the money is. Precisely. Not. Precisely. That is it. The money, the problem is not that the government, quote unquote, printed too, mu too much money. There's something else going on. Uh, and, and no one's going to care about the money at that point because yes. it's going to be such a severe thing. That's okay. Right. Okay. It seems to me that the there's a lot of connection between loanable funds and and Say's law and Nehru and rational expectations and and even barter. I guess underneath it all is barter, the quantity theory of money and all these things, veil of money, um, and even uh, uh, what's it called, money illusion. Right. That workers don't have good. All, all of these things is basically seem to me like academic excuses to. To preclude the idea of the federal government doing anything, that if the federal government does anything, it would not just be neutral, it would be dramatically harmful. It would upset the natural order of things. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, I want to go back to, uh, you know, if someone asked an economist to study a horse, they wouldn't go out and look at horses. They would sit around and think to themselves, what would I do if I were a horse? And so you come up with these theories. Honestly, I, to, to be very, um, uh, what's the opposite of complimentary? Uh, I guess uh, uh, <laughs> negative. <Insulting>. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, to be very negative, it strikes me that a, a lot of these economists have already got their conclusion before they started. And they are just filling in premises to, maybe not on a conscious level, but filling in premises to allow them to come to that conclusion. For example, money illusion. Okay, this is it. Uh, you really shock people with this one. Uh, Milton Friedman. Uh,